This podcast is brought to you by the law firm of Clyde Snow and Sessions, based in Salt Lake City with offices in Oregon and California. For over 65 years, Clyde Snow has represented clients throughout the West. Clyde Snow, serious about solutions. Hello, and welcome to Ripple Effect, a podcast putting water into context. I'm Emily Lewis, your host, and I'm a water attorney here in Salt Lake City, Utah, practicing creative solutions to today's and tomorrow's water problems. Welcome to the conversation. Hello, and welcome to the 42nd episode of Ripple Effect. I have with me today Jamie Butler, who is the coordinator at the Great Salt Lake Institute at Westminster College. And we actually had her colleague Bonnie Baxter on just a couple episodes ago. And I thought it'd be really nice to have kind of like a quicker follow up on Great Salt Lake discussions because. One, my discussion with Bonnie was fantastic and one of the favorite, my favorite episodes I've, I've recorded just because such interesting issues. And I think that like having some frequency of discussion is really helpful for kind of putting the pieces together. And so I was hoping to have Jamie here just kind of talk about her role as the coordinator and a little bit more about some of the programs the Great Select Institute does and just kind of rolling on from there. So to start us out, Jamie, can you tell us just a little bit about your background and kind of how you got to the Institute? Yeah, I I accidentally started working at Great Salt Lake when I was an undergraduate at Utah State University. I graduated with a fisheries degree and I mean, I got a fisheries degree because I wanted to study bugs. I really liked um, water and the invertebrates that, that were in the water. And I started working on brine shrimp at Great Salt Lake and the interaction of brine shrimp and the eared grebes that primarily feed on brine shrimp at Great Salt Lake, and how the brine shrimp harvesters that are working out on the lake kind of affect that whole ecosystem. And I just fell in love with the place. It was like, I grew up here in Utah and I didn't know much about the lake. I kind of thought the same things that a lot of locals think, you know, it's stinky and it's buggy and there's nothing that lives out there and it's dead. And then I found this place. I found this place that was actually very alive. It might be very different than other lakes that that we see, but it was very alive And it was this like undiscovered oasis for a biologist as like an undergrad um, with not a lot of people working out there at the time. And so I kind of accidentally fell into this place that's Great Salt Lake. And after I was at Utah State University, I worked with brine shrimp harvesters. I was a biologist and I helped them kind of I, I looked at the popu- I researched the population dynamics of brine shrimp on Great Salt Lake. Like for the industry? Did you work for the industry? I did. I worked okay. for the industry. And I mean, that was one that was like such an amazing cool job because there's all of these people that really understand this resource in a way that most people don't understand because they spend months at a time on the lake, on boats, in a place that, you know, is sometimes theoretical to to everybody else along the Wasatch Front. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so I said, I got to see it from this industry standpoint. And then I went to work for the Utah Division of Wildlife Resources, and they have this really cool program called the Great Salt Lake Ecosystem Program through the Department of Natural Resources. Their job is to manage and conserve the brine shrimp and bird populations on Great Salt Lake. So it was cool because I went from the industry to the state and I saw this really awesome partnership that was happening that I think, you know, at, at, like as I've gotten farther along in my career, I didn't realize how unique this partnership was with like industry and managers. We got to really work together in a partnership that was very cool. And then Dr. Bonnie Baxter started Great Salt Lake Institute at Westminster College and I had done all of this work in the salt and the mud, and I had fallen in love with this place, and I wanted to tell people about it. And you can't always do that when you work for a government agency. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of being careful about what you say or how you portray things. And so coming to Westminster College and being able to tell people, not just like people in our community, but mentor college students and network researchers with faculty was like a very cool opportunity for me. So I've been there for 12 years now. And less mud. (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes. Yeah. (laughs) Awesome. Great. And then, you know, we did talk with Bonnie a couple episodes ago about just like the mission of the Institute. But for those who, you know, are new for this episode, could you just briefly give an overview of kind of like what the Institute does, what the purpose and why the Institute is kind of there and housed at Westminster? Yeah, so we um, work to connect our community to Great Salt Lake through research and education. And, you know, when we started this 12 years ago, the lake was very understudied and Mm -hmm. misunderstood. And so that was an opportunity for us to bring undergrads in, right? These are students that are like 18 to 25, something like that, that haven't had a ton of experience that we can involve in real world research that really affects this cool natural ecosystem that's of hemispheric importance. And, and, and we have seen this, right? We know that the information that our students and other students around the, the state are collecting are um, really groundbreaking. So what are some of the projects that you guys are working on? Bonnie talked to us a little bit about your NASA collaboration. So um, those of you who who have not listened to the episode should go listen to it because it's fascinating. I like, I felt like I was like, Bonnie, I don't know if we can go here on the podcast because this is not even like water related at all, but can we please talk about the origins of the universe? (laughs) And it was fantastic. And we did. (laughs) Yeah. So I feel like we got your NASA project pretty covered, (laughs) but I would love to hear more specifically about kind of like, what are the other programs that the Institute kind of has going on? So I'm really obsessed with pelicans. Mm -hmm. Um, Pelicans, they nest on an island called Gunnison Island in the middle of the north arm of Great Salt Lake. So if you know anything about Great Salt Lake, I'm going to just go back and you're going to have to like, just excuse all of this back information. Great Salt Lake is cut into two by a railroad causeway. And the railroad causeway separates the south arm of the lake from the north arm of Great Salt Lake. And the south arm of Great Salt Lake, that's what receives all of our fresh water from all of this runoff that melts off from the snow, from the Weber, the Jordan, and the Bear River that come into Great Salt Lake. 
all of that fresh water goes into the south arm of Great Salt Lake. So the south arm of Great Salt Lake is still very salty, even though it gets all that fresh water. It's about 15% salt. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you've been to the ocean, maybe you've tasted seawater. Seawater on average is about 3.4% salinity. So the south arm of Great Salt Lake is about five times saltier than the ocean. And then there's this railroad causeway and the loosened cutoff that cuts off Great Salt Lake. And so north of that loosened cutoff is the north arm of Great Salt Lake, and it doesn't get very much fresh water. And because mm -hmm. of that, it is about 25 to 30% salt. So 10 times saltier than seawater or two times saltier than the south arm of Great Salt Lake. It's mm -hmm. so salty that the salt literally falls out of the water in the winter time because it can't hold all of that salt. And can you tell real quickly, because I think this is a little fascinating episode, but what role the causeway has and kind of what the thinking was on the causeway. My understanding is a pretty interesting history about how they thought things would go <laughs> and then how yeah. they actually went. <laughs> well, so, so, you know, the Transcontinental Railroad was built 150 years ago. We just had the Spike 150 here in Utah. And that was the meeting of the railroads from the east and the west. That is where the east met the west. And goods could be goods and people could be transported all the way from the west coast to the east coast and back and forth. And that was never happened until like 150 years ago. That meeting happened at the Golden Spike National Historic Monument. You know, that was all great and fine. But when the, the railroad causeway had to come west... So imagine going from the Pacific coast and you're going west and then there's this big giant lake that kind mm -hmm. of split that into half. And so they had to go all the way north and over mountains, a lot of topography. It took a lot of energy and then they had to come south into the Golden Spike near the city of Corinne in Utah. And that worked for a while. And then engineers were like, hey, we could build this causeway. So in the 50s, they built the loosen cutoff. And the loosen cutoff was made out of old growth dug fur. And it was um, a system of pilings with a railroad on top of that. Mm -hmm. And that was great for a little while, except for, you know, this, this railroad causeway sat on the sediments of Lake Bonneville. And all of these sediments and all of this stuff that's been coming into the Great Basin for hundreds of thousands of years. So it, it didn't work very well. <laughs> the pilings, they would sink, there would be like crashes on the railroad. And so instead of having this kind of like janky system of these pilings with a railroad on top of it that let water flow back and forth, they filled that in with rocks. And when they filled it in with rocks, it made it so water did not flow from north to south. So there was no salt exchange, there was no water exchange. And that north part of the lake, because it doesn't get fresh water, it just started to build up salt. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I just think it's so fascinating how that happened. Like we had the Causeway and I mentioned it in our prior episode, but Mariners and Hard Hats is a great YouTube video that you should watch about the building of the Causeway. Mm. Mm. Yeah. And I just think it's so funny. We had this Causeway, which was great. And like, oh, the water can go back and forth. And then at the time, the best practices and thinking was, you know what, let's just put a big rock dike across the middle of this huge Mm -hmm. lake. And then the funny part is like, it's so saline. So everything basically became like a concrete crust. (laughs) And so, and you know, I think for like um, people that enjoy like studying like laws and like why things happened, like they did build in two culverts. They Mm -hmm. built in a west culvert and an east culvert. And those I think, and anybody can correct me if I'm wrong, because I have not studied law or history, but from what I understand, they mostly put those in there to maintain navigability of Great Salt Lake. So, so okay, go on. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So Mm -hmm. in order to maintain state control over Great Salt Lake, the lake had to be navigable. Mm -hmm. And so boats had to be able to flow back and forth. And I don't think, and I could be wrong, but I don't think there was much thought to how much salt or like the salt balance. It was about maintaining control of Great Salt Lake under state control, because there has been during the history of like laws and lawmakers at Great Salt Lake proposals to turn it into a national monument or a national Mm -hmm. park. And the state of Utah did not want that. Mm-hmm. So That's I, fascinating. We did an episode with Fred Donaldson at Forestry Fire State Lands. He's the AG for Forestry Fire State Lands where we talk about navigability. And so mm-hmm. for those folks who don't know, if a water body can be determined to be navigable at statehood based on the equal footing doctrine, the original 13 colonies got the beds of all their waterways. If you're a new state into the union, basically if you could prove that that was a navigable body of, of water that the people of the state used at statehood, then the state retains ownership of the bed of that of that water body and it's considered to be a navigable water body. And for the Great Salt Lake, that's huge because you have all those mineral interests on the, on mm-hmm. the ownership of the uh, are that are yeah. used. And so the state really gets a lot of money off the Great Salt Lake. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I did not realize that the culverts were there for navigability. That is mm-hmm. fascinating. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I think that this recent one in 2016, I mm-hmm. think that had to do more with navigability than water. That's fascinating. Too. Yeah, and so for those people who don't know, they they did didn't they puncture it in 2016? Didn't they puncture so, the causeway and kind of open it up a little bit more? It, yeah, it's so interesting because okay, so all this fresh water it like goes into the into the south into the south arm of Great Salt Lake. So when they built the causeway, they had this east culvert and this west culvert. And mind you, like I said, you know this this um, causeway is kind of sinking all of the time. It can it has to have like constant maintenance because of like it sinks into those um, sediments of Lake Bonneville all of the time. And then in the 80s, when there was super high water, we had all of this snowpack for years. And then Mother Nature in 1983 turned on her heat lamp Mm -hmm. and basically melted all of this water. We had all of this water flowing into Great Salt Lake. And so I'm not sure what year it was, but it was in the mid 80s. I I think Mm -hmm. in 86, they put another culvert into the west side of Great Salt Lake near Lakeside. Mm -hmm. And that was because all of this fresh water was coming into Great Salt Lake and there was a head difference. So the south side of Great Salt Lake was like three or four or five feet different, higher 
than the north arm of Great Salt Lake. And so they built this culvert on the west side to let that fresh water so that it could equalize and not break down the causeway with all of this like pressure from all of this fresh water that was coming in. But then in 2016, those culverts, the east culvert and the west culvert, I mean, they had noticeably sunk. Like mm -hmm. these are places that I used to go through in a boat that like when I would come up to these culverts were maybe like a foot above the water. I couldn't take a boat through it without killing us, mm -hmm. right? And so they were clearly failing. I think they opened it in December of 2016 and closed it in 2015 mm -hmm. so that they could build causeway in between to um, allow for water flow in between those places. And there's actually a YouTube video of it too, if people want to YouTube it, because it's fascinating because it's like you just watch it and they're like different colors mm -hmm. are like swirling around mm -hmm. and it's pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because the north the north arm is so salty, you know, all that really lives in it are microbes. And they're pink in color, they're extremophile halophiles that Dr. Bonnie Baxter talked about. And the north arm is very green. The north mm -hmm. arm has a lot of like unicellular green algae. That's where all the brine shrimp that you hear about and most of the birds, mm -hmm. you know, most of the birds that you hear about coming to Great Salt Lake, most of those are kind of concentrating in the south arm of Great Salt Lake and a lot in the wetlands. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something that people really mischaracterize Great Salt Lake. Like um, Great Salt Lake, we tend to think about it as being the salty lake. And it is a big salty lake, except for there's 22,000 square miles of watershed that drain into Great Salt Lake. And the only way that water can escape is through evaporation. And so during that process of coming out of these mountains and coming out of these watersheds, you essentially have the most diverse ecosystem on the planet in terms of salt content. Mm -hmm. Like you have this water that's coming out of the mountains and filling up these wetlands and these freshwater wetlands have freshwater and fish and bugs that live in freshwater. And there's like this gradient that goes into Great Salt Lake. And, you know, I, I get a little bit salty mm -hmm. um, because I want people to know that really Great Salt Lake is one of the most diverse ecosystems on the planet. And we characterize it as only salty or stagnant. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that that's too, like I, in the conversation, I, I really do think the conversation about Great Salt Lake the, is evolving and kind of from, you know, the position we sit from, you know, a legal position and, and for full disclosure, our firm has done some work for Great Salt Lake Advisory Council in the, in the recent years, uh, looking at legal strategies to get water to the Great Salt Lake. Um, was a big project we did this summer. But like, I do think the discussion I think is evolving in a way that I think is really healthy. You know, like, you know, people may not understand exactly the dynamics of the lake, but they understand it's important, if that makes sense. Like, have you seen that from kind of mm -hmm. your position as well? Yeah. And I hope so. You know, it's one of the things I, I like, I've always misunderstood this whole, like, it's stagnant, it's dead. Like, some, when I started my career at Great Salt Lake, I said, I'm a biologist at Great Salt Lake. And somebody said to me, oh, well, that must be easy. Nothing lives there. Mm -hmm. And my jaw dropped because I knew 
you know, how many bugs were in the sediments and how the birds would like, they like take their feet. Like one time I was standing out on the Antelope Island Causeway and I encouraged everybody listening to this to go to the Antelope Island Causeway because not only do you, when you're on the causeway, you're looking, you know, if you're driving out to Antelope Island, on the right side, you're gonna see the south arm of Great Salt Lake. On the um, left side, you're gonna see Farmington Bay. So Farmington Bay has a lower salinity because again, the Antelope Island Causeway cuts off the, the water from flowing between there. So you're sitting on this Antelope Island Causeway and you're gonna see different birds foraging in Farmington Bay on your left side and Gilbert Bay on your right side. But I remember seeing I was standing out there and I couldn't figure out what this sound was. And it was like this, but like times a million, mm -hmm. like it was like this loudest, weird, like kind of like slurpy sound. And I realized the gulls were standing there and they were standing in the mud and they would let their feet kind of sink into the mud and then they would pull it up and then they would expose bugs that were underneath oh. that mud and they would like start to peck and they would like feed on those bugs. So there's like this super rich food source, proteins and fats for like 10 million birds that come to Great Salt Lake every year, 338 species that really rely on the various habitats that Great Salt Lake provides from the freshwater to the super high per saline. Mm -hmm. I love that they were like feet fishing. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> well, it's so funny because when you smooth, you made that noise. I literally was like, that sounds like mud. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and like the birds, like they feed differently. So the eared grebes that I studied, it turns out that these eared grebes, so they're like little ducks and you can like hold your hands up, like as if you were like holding like a pigeon in your hand or something. And that's about how big they are. They're like about the size of a pigeon and they come to Great Salt Lake in the fall, midsummer and fall. Some of them do reproduce here, but most of them come here in the fall time and they just start gorging themselves on brine shrimp. Like they mm -hmm. eat something like 90% brine shrimp. And they come here and they get so fat that they lose their ability to fly. They put all of their energy into their digestive system and like all of their musculature kind of atrophies and they molt their feathers and they just eat brine shrimp and they just get super fat. So they're just the like peeps. They're like real peeps. Oh yeah. They're like real peeps. Like they kind of get <laughs> like, like Donald Duck cheeks, you know how mm -hmm. Donald Duck kind of had mm -hmm. like little dimples. They kind of get like that, but because we've managed and I would love, I mean, if you want to talk about this, I would love to talk about this, but you know, they eat primarily brine shrimp and because the state of Utah and the brine shrimp industry have worked in this partnership to manage the brine shrimp harvest, we actually have optimized brine shrimp production and brine shrimp on Great Salt Lake. And so right now, I mean, at times over 95% of the world's population of eared grebes, which is, you know, between four and five million birds are sitting on Great Salt Lake eating our brine shrimp, which is super cool. And I mean, it's really weird because when I started doing this in 1999, 
that wasn't necessarily the case. We had between one and 2 million eared grebes that came to Great Salt Lake. So mm -hmm. over those years, we've seen an increase in this particular amount of bird because we are managing our lake in a very effective manner and other places aren't. So those eared grebes are now coming to Great Salt Lake. So it's like a sea monkey buffet. Yeah, totally. That's, by the way, our, our, I mean, that is, the, I mean, I don't want to at all downplay the importance of brineship, but they are sea monkeys at the end of the day, right? <laughs> oh, they are. And I, I was telling somebody about this and they're like, so Great Salt Lake is like Las Vegas for birds. Like everybody just comes to like reproduce and eat. <laughs> I was like, well, maybe. <laughs> yeah, kind of. <laughs> yeah. yeah, a person has interesting vacation habits. <laughs> <Just kidding. laughs> Okay, Jamie, so you obviously have a passion for this lake and, and that description of kind of like how important the lake is and kind of, you know, you know, just the fact that, you know, we've done such a good job managing the lake that, you know, from that perspective, that, you know, we can support these healthy bird populations. In your mind, like, what are the most important things that we could be doing in kind of like the 5, 10, and 15-year markers? Because I'm really interested to hear professionals talk about not just short-term goals, but some also long-term goals. Like, I had a, an interview a couple months ago where the gentleman said, people overestimate the amount of things they can do in one year, but underestimate the amount of stuff they can do in 10 years. And I think that is so salient. And we should start looking at, I think the 10 to 15-year range is such a, you know, it's a doable range and it's something to think about. And it's not that like 30, 40 year really long time horizon that we mm -hmm. often talk about in water. And so kind of what are your, you know, if you were to kind of have your magic wand or set your priorities for kind of like the next five, 10 and 15 years, like what would you like to see happen on the lake? Water, 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 water. <laughs> so, okay, like, good. <laughs> that, I mean, like we know right now this year um, is 2021. We have a super sucky water outlook for this year. And we've seen this before and we need to conserve water. And when I say conserve water, I think it means different things to different people. Mm -hmm. And I love, there's a woman at the U of U, Dr. Nalini Nadkarni, who is a tree forest ecologist. And I love the way that she describes ecosystems as being a tapestry. She won a really big award recently, like a mm -hmm. MacArthur grant or like a, I've heard an interview with her. Sorry. She has a Barbie doll. She's yes. got like all yeah. sorts of, like, she's mm -hmm. just a total awesome human being, scientist, conservationist. And she talks about ecosystems as being a tapestry. And so we all have these like little threads that we can weave to create this like beautiful picture of Utah and of Great Salt Lake. And they don't, they're not like puzzle pieces, right? They're like this tapestry that weaves through every part of like our culture and our ecosystem and the picture that is like all of our place in Utah. Mm -hmm. And everybody has this little piece, this little thread that they can play. And not everybody has the same power as like I do to speak about Great Salt Lake. And not everybody has the power that you do to understand the laws and the water laws. But together, like we can all work together to make this tapestry 
that includes wildlife and humans and ecosystems and clean air and clean water. And so that's not a very satisfying answer, probably, because you want this one thing like turn your water off when you brush your teeth Mm -hmm. or take a shorter shower. Mm-hmm. And we need to incorporate Great Salt Lake into all parts of our life, like not watering our lawn as much, removing grass, advocating for clean water in all of our ecosystems. Yeah. And can I, can I, I have thoughts on this one? Can I yeah as well? I also think yeah. I had a great discussion with Ted Knowlton from the Wasatch Front Regional Council. And we had a very similar discussion. It was a great discussion because we basically talked about how do you execute large scale goals through independent actions? You know what Mm -hmm. I mean? When you're not unified by profession or, you know, a specific goal, like, you know, would be great if we could have, like, we just had to raise the money to buy the water, you know, like that'd be awesome. Mm -hmm. But like, it's so much more than that. Like, like it's kind of how, you know, these 10,000 little tiny steps add up to your, you know, your beautiful tapestry. And one of the things that I, and this is a little bit of an aside, but I think fits into this, you know, when people think about how they can participate and how they can do things, like it's not just turning off your tap. It's not Mm -hmm. just, you know, ripping your strip, but it also is making sure your community is living up to those values. And we had a great discussion about the need for civic participation at the city and town council level. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. Because honestly, if we're going to make these conservation goals, that we need to talk about our land use planning mm-hmm. is such an integral part of this. And it's, and I had a really another, gosh, this podcast has some really smart people on it. <laughs> um, I had another really great discussion with the, with uh, the team from Bones and Collins who did the Bear River Project Conservation Study about what it would take us from a conservation perspective to avoid kind of the large scale build out and development that the Bear River Project contemplates. And they, they talked a lot about land use planning and they talked a lot about how how expensive it was to retrofit. Like I did not realize how expensive it was to retrofit. Mm-hmm. Like they pretty much were like, for us to get the amount of water we would need through retrofitting landscaping, we should just build the Bear River Dams. <laughs> like that, you know, like the cost to get that much water through conservation through retrofitting um, land use would, we, it's the same to just build the dams. And so this prospective action at the community level for land Mm -hmm. like land use planning is kind of like this theme that keeps coming up constantly in our discussions and if people who are listening want to get involved you know working with your city councils on having policies and and, you know zoning and um, ordinances that meet these needs is such a key component sorry that's a little soapbox (laughs) no you should I'm stoked that like you have this like really like big perspective you know Mm -hmm. of like how how all of this is working because Great Salt Lake has a memory and it's a memory of everything that happens in 22,000 square miles of watershed and and a memory of what does not happen in those 22,000 square miles of watershed and so like the the lake I've always considered like the canary in the coal mine like Mm -hmm. that's the first thing that we're going to start to see all of these effects of our actions or inactions will happen at Great Salt Lake it's going to be like water quality and dust issues our pelicans um, that that rely on islands won't have islands anymore and um, you know we will see all of that at Great Salt Lake and we are seeing that now right? Like we see land bridges, we have dust 
and really, I mean, I joke around because it's like kind of a silly pun, but, but it is the pelicanary in the coal mine that we are seeing starting to die. And it worries me. And, you know, when I say water, 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 you know, it doesn't just it doesn't just matter to the 10 million birds. There's 3 million people that live along the Wasatch Front that are gonna be affected by a shrinking Great Salt Lake. And we need to think about that now. And we need to make decisions as a community and not just not make decisions because we think it's hard or because it's hard to talk about these things. Like we need to make these decisions so we don't have what is an Owens Lake. Yeah. Have you talked about Owens Lake? You know, I think that perhaps, so I had a conversation, you know, earlier with Representative Tim Hawks and um, Jeff Demblaker from Jacobs Engineering. And I think we briefly mentioned Owens Lake, but that was a while ago. And so I think Owens Lake is a fantastic example for someone who's knowledgeable about to to tell the listening community, because it is our worst case scenario. Like we do not want to do this. And I I think it's hard for people, you know, geographic and biological and environmental change just happens at such a time scale, but much more quickly nowadays, that it's hard for people to visualize what it looks like when it when it actually happens. So if you could talk about Owens Lake, that would be awesome. Yeah. So I visited Owens Lake a few years ago. And Owens Lake is on the eastern side of the Sierra Nevadas. And Owens Lake is a saline lake. Um, you know, freshwater came in there And I I wish I could remember the years now, but I'm going to be foggy on that because I haven't studied it for a long time. But essentially a developer, Mulholland from the city of LA developed all of the water. So they took- Which a quick aside, everybody should go and watch Chinatown if you have not done that yet. Yes. It is a fictionalized version of what is happening now. This developer, Mulholland, he took a straw. And if you follow that straw, you can follow it from Owens Lake to the city of LA. And I've done this before in a car. And you see this straw that goes along the mountainside. And what they did was they diverted the freshwater river that fed into Owens Lake into the city of LA. And then there were subsequent claims of groundwater and buying of groundwater that took all of this fresh water out of this saltwater lake. And so, you know, like just like Great Salt Lake, Owens was a terminal lake. All of this water and like the minute amounts of minerals and pollutants and whatever it was, the sediments, they would come into Owens Lake and only the water would evaporate. So that left all of this salt, all of these pollutants, nutrients, all of this stuff in there. And so when the water wasn't there anymore, they started to get these horrific dust storms. Mm -hmm. And there wasn't a lot of people that lived in the, the nearby town. But I mean, essentially now the city of LA, every person in LA pays about 15% of their water bill to reclaim Owens Lake. Mm-hmm. to like control the dust and it's been billions of dollars now and this this town is you know it's a little ghost town now you know they try to control the dust through lots of different methods they've essentially covered the entire lake bed with um two inch gravel um except for parts that are like important to birds 
And I think, you know, the really important thing, like remember, people are paying like 15% of their water bill to reclaim this land. There's like all of these health effects, like birds were displaced, humans were displaced. It's now ghost town. Owens Lake, it, its footprint is 110 square miles. Great mm-hmm. Salt Lake has a footprint of 1700 square miles. Whoa. So magni- magnitudes larger. And there's not just a few people that are on the shoreline. There's like 3 million people now. Mm-hmm. So we need to pay some very, very, very close attention to what the human health effects and economic effects are to a dry and great salt lake, because I think that it will be pretty catastrophic. Yeah. And this is what Jeff Dunblaker talks about a lot. And he's an incredibly good, uh, incredibly smart voice on, on this matter. He just talks about the deferred cost of attention is remediation, you mm-hmm. know, and remediation mm-hmm. is many, many, many times more expensive than, mm-hmm. than kind of thinking on the front end. And you have all yeah. the impacts that happen. You know, I mean, our air quality is so poor already, you know, mm-hmm. contributing further mm-hmm. to air quality. You mm-hmm. know, we are this, the hot economy that is the Utah economy. The Utah economy, if no one wants to live here, is going to is gonna flatten and crash. And we're going to yeah. have all these people here, you know, um, who've moved here now living in a very drastically different environment, which I guess will give us more people to tax. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it's, you know, the impact of having all these people come here because it's a nice place to live. And then now not not being able one to have the water to feed them, but two, you know, have this biological disaster happen, you know, in our backyard but, is scary. But I do think, I do think, you know, I like, I don't despair. I mean, sometimes I despair, but I think there's so many reasons for hope because like, you know, right now we have like the lowest water rates in the U S and we have the highest amount of water consumption in the United States. Mm-hmm. And so I think there are many avenues that we can target for conservation, you know, and we're converting a lot of ag land and I'm not an expert on water law or where all of the water is coming from, but I do think that there is a lot of reason for hope. And I think that the equation of more people equals more water is not linear. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think that there's like a lot of ways that we can take this issue And we can take action as individuals, as, and I would very much encourage businesses, I would very much encourage everybody to take action on this as like this tapestry. Yeah. And I think so, because it's all in our interests and I, and that's kind mm-hmm. of, the, you know, the, the getting that message out. I mean, but I, you said something earlier that also really stuck with me where you said, you know, this is also a difficult question. So people kind of shy away from engaging in it. And I agree with you that like, we don't have time to do that anymore for anything really, you mm-hmm. know, I mean, like climate change is real. It is happening. Yep. I think Salt Lake, the Salt Lake area in particular in Northern Utah, well, everywhere, but, you know, we sit on the jet stream in a way that we are going to be particularly affected by what happens one way or the other, you know, like we're going to have increasingly disrupted water supplies while one year may be really pretty wet or our falls and springs may be wet, you know, because um, I read a really interesting statistic about how we're actually intended, Salt Lake will actually get more water um, than now, but it's all going to come in rain in, in the spring and fall when we can't um, actually access it. You know, it's going to come as runoff. Yeah, and like some of that is really weird for Great Salt Lake. And so the first thing I would say in response to your comments is we need to decide now. Mm-hmm. So like we've had this kind of ostrich kind of mentality of putting our head in the sand and not like making decisions because it might be hard to have a conversation 
we need to have those conversations because the things that we do or don't do have pretty dramatic effects on a Great Salt Lake um, that's um, at a tipping point. Mm -hmm. And it is at a tipping point. So like right now, the salinity of Great Salt Lake is about 16% and it's going to go higher this summer. And brine shrimp don't do very good past that. Oh, so, mm -hmm. so like we need to like really have some like honest and hard conversations about like these tipping points that are that are like knocking on our doorsteps. Optimistically. <laughs> <laughs> these opportunity points. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, no, and I, I guess, I mean, I guess I, I've known that this is a situation is dire, but I had, I had not known that where we were, you know, what that means in terms of like a scientific metric of salinity of X amount is, you know, going to kill the brine shrimp industry. And like, obviously that's implicit and in kind of what we're talking about, but I haven't ever heard someone just say it just like that. Like mm -hmm. we're that close. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I've heard, you know, I've heard people say, let's kill the North Arm of Great Salt Lake and cut it off from all the fresh water and save the Southern part of Great Salt Lake. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like there's a very still very like rich ecosystem that's happening north of the causeway, including our pelicans that Bonnie talked about that I study, you know, it's one of the major breeding grounds of American white pelicans. So we, we stand to lose a very rich ecosystem and we stand to have a catastrophic collapse of an ecosystem on our back door if we don't make some changes. Yeah. That's all there is to it. Like, and that's why a lot of people are, you know, out there being uncomfortable and talking to the public about it right now, because like we see this like tipping point that's happening. Mm -hmm. That's not like a dramatic it's not something dramatic that people are faking. It's like mm -hmm. a real, it's a real thing. A real thing that the consequences are, are I mean, I think catastrophic is the way to put it. Mm -hmm. Oh man, I usually love to end on a positive note here, Jamie. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so here's So frame it as a positive note. note for our listeners. How, what do we do with the dramatic catastrophic tipping point of the Great Salt Lake that is quickly coming down the barrel? <laughs> this, this is my very positive note. Good. I, my career has been at Great Salt Lake since 1999 for over 20 years. Mm -hmm. And when I started in 1999, I felt like nobody knew about Great Salt Lake. And I could go to these meetings and I could see that these state agencies or federal agencies, nobody was talking together. Nobody was communicating. Nobody was telling people what their concerns were. Nobody was like really like partnering. Mm -hmm. I see that happening now. Mm -hmm. And I think it's rad. And I think that Utah, like we know how to work with people, right? Like, yeah. I think that it's very cool that we can have hard conversations and, you know, the great Salt Lake ecosystem program and the brand shrimp industry working together to like make this very sustainable and even optimal brand shrimp population in great Salt Lake is like the prime example in my career that I have seen people working together to work towards a common goal of a sustainable great Salt Lake. 
-hmm. And, and like, I see that happening all over the place now with forestry, fire and state lands with the Department of Environmental and Water Quality. So both between like federal and state governments, um, between non-governmental agencies, and also through academia. And I see this really, really, really cool groundswell of action and of like management and of research and communication that I think is like very unprecedented. And I feel like, you know, people look all around the world, people look to Great Salt Lake for advice on how to manage their brain shrimp populations or how to manage their Salt Lake. And I think that that's what we're gonna be. I think we're going to be this really positive, cool example of how we can save this unique, weird, smelly, buggy, I mean, whatever you want to call it, kind of this stagnant, dead, live, so much alive, great Salt Lake, um, that's so important to humans and birds and, you know, really this place that we call the Salt Lake Valley and the Great Basin. And it really gives me hope seeing all of these amazing people like Tim Hawks and Jeff Denblaker and Dr. Monty Baxter and all of the scientists that we work with at the Division of Wildlife Resources and at Utah State University and like all of these places. We get to see this cooperation happen to maintain a viable Great Salt Lake. You get to make new memories for the landscape. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I'm stealing that. I wrote it down. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> well, Jamie, I'm glad we could reframe that on a more positive note. Um, <laughs> this has been a lovely discussion, and I, I so appreciate you giving us some context, just kind of some fun, fun, interesting trivia about the lake and kind of how it works and its importance. You know, I, I definitely loud and clear here that, you know, this is a call to action, and, and I am really thankful that the Grace Lake Institute at Westminster is out here doing this work because um the time is now the time is now yeah mm-hmm. yeah agreed nothing said in this podcast should be taken as providing legal advice or as establishing an attorney-client relationship with you or anyone else this podcast was produced by Mackenzie nichols find ripple effect on itunes spotify or wherever you get your podcasts Thank you for listening.